This is episode 26 with Miha Baldwin. Welcome to the Capitalize on Your Idea podcast, helping you bring any idea to fruition. Now, here's the guy who makes it all happen while keeping his day job, Justin Escar. What's up, Capitalizers? It's January 12th. It's a big day. I'm going to be doing a presentation tonight in the, in New York City for the Inventors Association of Manhattan. So if you're in the city, 6.30 tonight, check it out at uh, the Chrysler Building. Go to meetup.com slash Inventors Association of Manhattan or check out the links in the show notes. Today's episode, though, is really cool because I have on my mentor, Miha Baldwin. And uh, I met Miha a couple years back at the South by Southwest Venture to Venture. He did a presentation that blew my mind called happiness is not a nine letter word and he has some really good tips and tricks that he talks about in that presentation it's up on youtube we'll throw it in the show notes he talks about how to succeed at failing which is a really important thing for people who are starting their own business you know if we've had uh dr roy bachar back on in episode three talk about how failing at your business not does not show that you are a failure as a person and you need to separate those two things. And Miha talks about failing as a person and how to succeed at doing that because if you could succeed at failing, you could succeed at anything. And I thought that was great. So I, I called up Miha and I was like, hey, do you want to be on the podcast? And he's like, sure. And I was like, well, what do you want to talk about? He's like, I don't know. What do you want to talk about? And we decided to talk about something that I have no knowledge of whatsoever. And that is money. A lot of people who are starting their business or coming up with ideas and everything always ask me like, where do I get venture capitalist money? Where do I get angel money? I saw that this company just raised $200 million in seed funding. How do I get that? And I always say to people, I I don't know, because I've never done that. I've bootstrapped everything. So me has had uh, many, many successful companies in the past, and he's raised money and he's helped raise money and he's gotten people money and stuff like that. And I I wanted to have him on today to talk about that because I think it's a really important lesson. I got to say, I learned so much just from talking to him about this. It like blew my mind. So I want everyone to really pay attention. This is really important stuff, really good stuff from Miha. Uh, So today's episode is Miha Baldwin. We're calling it Light Your Money on Fire because that just sounds kind of cool. And uh, take a listen to the interview today with Miha Baldwin. What's up, everybody? I'm here with uh, my good friend, Miha Baldwin, who is a longtime startup entre- entrepreneur, uh, mentor, coach, all around amazing dude. Miha, how are you today? I'm doing well. That's uh, quite the intro. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so Miha and I met at, lo and behold, a South by Southwest venture to venture. Miha did a presentation on happiness, which I thought was amazing. Um, and we'll put the YouTube for that in the show notes later. But the reason, Mia, I wanted to I wanted to have you on today is you have a, you've had a lot of success with a, a many different startups, and and the big thing that a lot of people come to me for, and I can't help them with because I've never done this, is raising money. A lot of people see things in the news now where you know some app made eleven million dollars in seed funding, or somebody invested a gajillion dollars in this little do hickey and you're like why can't i do that um why why can't i do that <laughs> sure uh you know it's funny i um uh 
<clears throat> recently sent out a tweet that got kind of uh, some energy around it where I said, you know, fundraising is easy. It's just terrible. And and that's the reality of, of raising money is that it's just a process. It's just the most painful process you'll probably ever go through. Um, and, and really, I think that the reason for that is that we equate as entrepreneurs, we're constantly being told that we as people uh, are value creators. And so we question whether uh, if we're raising money and we're having a hard time raising money, is that is there anyone else that sees that value other than us? And so it becomes a very really the emotional sort of painful side of fundraising is the hard part. The actual process of raising money, not so hard. It's just literally a process like most others, and and we can certainly talk about um, you know the 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 six easy steps to raising money. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, so before we do the six easy steps, I always I, I'm a big fan of bootstrapping and doing every everything myself because in my eyes, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if I have investors, I have to do what they want. Yeah, I think. That's a very fair statement. One of the things that I find really interesting is that bootstrapping has become a movement. Fundraising is a movement, and somehow the two are diametrically opposed. The truth is, is that is that there's a little bit of bootstrapping inside of fundraising, and there's a little bit of fundraising inside of bootstrapping. You know, uh, the difference is that when you bootstrap, most of your investors are your customers. Um, when you're fundraising, it's this venture guy. Um, you know, it's sort of interesting. I was raising money uh, for a company uh, with a first-time founder, and we were talking about it. And I said, listen, you have to decide at this moment whether you want to raise money or not. Because the second you raise money, the expectations change, and you're now an employee of your business. The board, at the end of the day, owns a piece of the business, and they're going to be somewhat directive, and they're going to expect a more accelerated growth than you would if you were doing this on your own. So make the decision. Do you want to accept the money, which comes with the expectation of speed, um, or do you want to just keep building this on your own and see where it can go? Uh, we raise money. <laughs> I think people get excited about you know having millions of dollars in the bank, but um, is that really? But, what, that's all this really is. Is I mean, it really comes down to people wanting to just have money for themselves. Is it? Do you think that sometimes takes away from a quality product? That's a really good question. So most of the time, uh, when you see people raising, you know, ten or twenty million dollars, um, most of the time they're actually not taking any money for themselves. Um, you usually aren't supposed to take money. There is no founder liquidity usually until um, you know a Series B. So usually in your third round of fundraising, because at that point the company is on its way up. And what the investors are trying to do is to say, hey, we're going to give you some money, founders, so that you don't want to sell the company and you'll continue to grow it until it becomes as big as it possibly can. Normally, in the seed round, when you see the million or $2 million raise or the A round, when you see 5 to $7 million raise, the founder is not taking any money. Um, what it does, though, is it does make it nice to know that you're not making decisions based entirely upon revenue that you can make those decisions based on growth, um, which sometimes mean killing revenue. When you're bootstrapping, you can't do that because, you know, you got to eat. Right. And so um, so the decision-making, in theory, the, the decision-making changes. I think that, that one of the things that gets tough on when you raise money when you're a venture-backed company is that 
is that revenue does matter. It just doesn't matter today. And understanding the moment when revenue matters is a difference between success and failure, right? Like, like if I know that I can hold off revenue for eight months, but because I'm young and I don't really know what I'm doing and I don't really go after revenue until 12 months, I may have literally killed my business. And if I bootstrap, I'm thinking about revenue from day one, but because I'm thinking about revenue from day one, there's some opportunity that I can't take because I need the revenue, and all of a sudden, I kill the business anyway because I needed to take care of that, you know, whatever the opportunity was, and now all of a sudden, you know, I'm dead in the water because I'm making 100 grand a month and I can't really accelerate past it because I have no resource to do it. So it really is a very much um, a fine line between, you know, do you or do you not take money? It, it really is just a different philosophy and a different strategy that you take with your business. All right. So let's it, talk about, but let's go then, let's talk about your six steps. So that sure. way, because before we have to make that decision, we need to even see if we can get money, obviously, right? Yeah. Um, so let's talk about this. You said there are six easy steps. I don't know if it's six. I just six is a good number. Right, I was usually say three, but I'll I'll go through the 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 thing. Here is actually the first step that most people don't. And this is where I think the line between bootstrapped and and VC sort of um, blur is that you raise money, you get money from investors based on future potential, and and that future potential is usually ill defined. So what happens is. Um, you go, look, I want to go raise a million dollars for my company. And the investor goes, cool, what do you want it for? And you're like, well, I want the business to be around for 12 months. I'm going to hire some people, right? Like, you don't really know. And so they go, okay, cool. And so you're told, go raise money before you have revenue, because as soon as you have revenue, it's easy to determine what your future potential is. They tell you, raise money uh, when you have traction, but there's never any definition of what traction is. And so I actually think that the best first step is to sit down with an Excel spreadsheet and make a guess as to what your future potential is. Understand what the business actually can be and be super honest. Like no one will ever see this Excel spreadsheet but you. And if what it comes out to be is that the business really has no opportunity to be a $100 million business over a five-year you know, time frame, it may actually be best to not take any investment. But how would somebody know that? Like, you're again, you said this is guessing. This is kind of like writing a business plan. In five years, we plan to have $100,000 or a million dollars. But there's no, there's no ground that that's yeah. based on, right? To a certain degree. I think what you can do, it, it's certainly not simple. And yes, it's very much guessing. Um, but I think what you can do is you can sit down, and I've done this on multiple occasions, is you sit down. I had a really good friend of mine, Josh Elman, who's a, a big-time VC now over at Greylock. And he always uses this term monetizable moment, um, whereas there's a moment that you monetize. So with Twitter, right, their, use, their whole monetization is um, promoted tweets. So it really is their monetizable moment is when you log in and you look at your tweet stream, right? Like every time I look at my t tweet stream, I'm generating potential revenue. And so the question is, is how often do people check their stream? And if they... Send a tweet, that's the time when they're checking. But checking the stream really matters. And what's interesting is that their new onboarding is we're going to fill that stream so that you keep coming back <clears throat> regardless of whether you follow people or not. 
So what you need to do in your business is determine first what that monetizable moment is. And it could be something, again, as simple as I need them to log in multiple times per day. And if you can determine what your monetizable moment is, you can make some guesses as to how much money you can make on that monetizable moment. Um, and at that point, you can make some guesses as to what the potential long-term is. And, and the idea is that you look at it and you go, wow, in order for us to do $100 million in revenue you know, in five to seven years, I need to have 1.7 billion users. Okay, that's probably not doable. You know, What is it going to look like if the business had a million users or 10 million users, right? So you start to be able to really get a feel for what the potential what the potential success points are for the business in the long term and then you can determine whether you know raising money is going to cause difficulty or not because all of a sudden you're going to have this weird expectation that you're not going to be able to achieve and even worse i guess going back to my my happiness conversation is you created a business that has what i call this invisible ceiling so that the business itself can't go past a certain point and all of a sudden, you think it's you as the founder is the reason why the business isn't accelerating. So then you get you hear all the bad things that happen with, um, you know, with startups. You start to hear all of a sudden, am I going to get fired as the CEO because maybe it's me, right? Like maybe I should sell the company now, even though potentially the company's better. And you keep running into all these problems. So I do think that even though it's fully a guess. You, you dive into that business, you put some real thought behind it, and you get an idea of whether it has the ability to grow rapidly and to a size that a venture backed, I'm sorry, a, a venture firm would find interesting. It's interesting. I'm so I, to... I really do think that's the first step. Wow. Okay. So that's all the first, because I'm thinking about this now for like my own stuff. And I do this a lot on, even on the show where I'm like, okay, if I wanted to get SemiPad or SemiPad Cloud, backed i mean i know the numbers that i would want to hit and it doesn't seem like it's that far off i now have to go back and do the reverse of it and be like okay how many users do i really need can i get those users are those people do those people exist and if they exist then i have a i guess you're saying i have a formula to go to the vcs with and say this will work if you back me yeah well here's the funny part you never share that with anybody oh really yeah i mean okay. that's that's for you right okay. like that's literally do I feel this has opportunity? So the higher pitch is different. Okay, so there's there's so I think what would be important for that first step though is for people to have a sense of realism because I right. a lot of the time, you know, everybody who creates an app nowadays always wants to be the next Angry Birds or Candy Crush or whatever it is, and the fact of the matter is like those were just those are one offs. You need to actually put some realism into your to your whatever you're making and think you know, who is your art? Who is your audience? Can you hit the numbers that you want to hit? And, and like you were saying, like the, if you want to make a $1 bajillion, you need to have like 1.7 billion users. Like that's not going to happen. Um, yeah. so keep it within, I guess, within reason. Yeah. I mean, what happens a lot in, in sort of funded startup land is you, um, you get into this cycle of being what I call the constant pivot. Right, you're doing something. It seems not to be working or not working as fast as you want. So now I have to change and do something else. Well, let me do something else. Well, let me do something else. And you never really think back whether it's the reason why you're doing all these things is because you're trying to keep a business alive that really shouldn't be alive. Right? Like you should literally throw the entire thing out and start fresh. Maybe in something different. Maybe in a different space within that market. 
Um, but but you don't do that because you feel this weird responsibility to these people that have given you millions of dollars without realizing that one of the reasons why you collected a million dollars was so that you could throw the whole thing out and start again. Hmm. Right. I mean, that's that's literally one of the reasons why is they've you know, they say they've invested in the team is because, you know, they assume the team will be successful inside the market that they're they're going after. And so um so yeah, I, I think that the first exercise is just coming to terms, you know, having your Jesus moment with yourself as to whether you're willing to take the money and then can you be successful? Is there the opportunity to be successful? That's the first thing you have to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, because being being venture-backed is fantastic because you have these guys that are like, yeah, we'll give you more money. Yeah, oh, you need six more months? No problem. Until there comes a moment where they're like, yeah, and we're out. And you're like, but now I got 20 people. I don't know what to do. Like, now I'm screwed. Um, and it's all because when you started the business, you should have never raised money in the first place. And you just weren't, we weren't ready for that right. or aware of that. All right. So let's go to step two. Okay. So, <laughs> so uh, after you get through that horrendous, uh, uh, ex- you know, experiment, um, activity. Yeah, self-exploration. Really the way to look at when you go to raise money, now you've decided you want to raise money and you've got a little bit of a business going. Like you, Nobody really gives any money on the idea any longer. Like You have to have something, at least a prototype at the bare minimum. Um, And that really depends on the, while people don't like to say this, but if you're 3X Googlers and you have a shitty, you know, prototype, uh, you can probably raise money. If you're three dudes from you know, from San Jose, California that haven't really done anything, um, you probably can't. So there is a little bit of pedigree that matters. But but in fundraising, there's sort of three things that people look at. They look at the market, they look at the product, and they look at the team. And if you read anything from venture people, uh, they often will say, we invest in teams. Seed guys invest in teams. It's all about the team. It's kind of a lie. Uh, really what happens is most venture uh, firms or even, you know, angels to a certain degree have these thesis C's. Is it thesis C's? Thesis I's? Multiple theses? Valley thief? I don't know. That they have these beliefs of what can work, right? They believe that the share economy is the next big thing. They believe that ebooks are the next big thing. They believe whatever it is, right? They believe that uh, security driven by, um, you know, in the cloud is the next big thing. And at the big venture firms, what happens is, is that the partner will go to their associate and say, I'm really interested in this market. Go find all the players. Give me 100 pitches. I want to understand this market better than anyone. So they'll go out and look at a market that they're interested in, right? Wearables, whatever it is. Even the the angels will have an idea of things that they're into. So every investor starts with the market. And, and I'll find, like myself, often I'll go, look, I just don't understand this market. Like, I can't help you. I've got nothing for you, right? Like, here are the things that I'm really interested in. Here's the things that I just don't understand. And so, um, so market will matter more than anything right off the bat. But market will be the first thing. So understanding the market helps you drill down into the investors that you want to talk to. So that matters more than anything. So do your research. 
Look at all the companies that are doing things inside of your market. Look at people who have invested in them. Look at the people that have invested with those people traditionally, right? Like create your list at that moment of all your potentials. Okay. So that matters more than anything is, is understand who to talk to. Right. You know, just like sales, right? You need to have a prospect list. After that, um, the next step is the team. And the team matters in the sense that I want to know how smart the team is. Are these people that I believe that can operate and create a solution to a problem inside of a market that I'm interested in? So the first step is that you have to convince me um, that there's a real problem. So it's whatever the problem is. Like I need to get a taxi cab, you know, in two minutes instead of sitting out in the rain for an hour. Um, I need to be able to communicate, um, you know, instantaneously. I need to connect with all my friends. I need to, whatever it is, right? So there has to be some problem. Your product at the end of the day is an indication of your intelligence. It really is. Like how well have you thought through the solution to this problem? So, so, to me, the next step is understand the market, right? Mm -hmm. um, and understand who's interested in that market and what are the trends in that market and, and just understand everything, the size of the market, like all these things. The other thing to remember about market sizing is that when you're trying to figure out, again, the interest in your business is that most investors are looking for what they call unicorns, which is that billion dollar business. They know they're not going to get a ton of those, you know, maybe, you know, one or two in their lifetime. Um, so they're looking for businesses that can own a sizable piece of a market. It could be a very small market that they're going to own all of it or a very big market that you're going to own a small piece of it. And you need to be able to articulate that. So, so it, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I wanted to. I wanted to. A lot of people understand their market, and that makes sense. But I wanted to talk about the team thing for a second because this is since you mentioned team, it's been sitting on my head. Okay. I'm a team of one. Yep. Does that automatically discredit me? No, it just makes it really, really hard. So let's talk about teams. So there's a couple things on teams that are interesting. Um, one is is that there's really two parts to a team. Um, I wrote a blog post years ago called Hackers and Hustlers, and um, basically the idea is that you need to have a hacker and a hustler to put together a really solid startup team. So you need someone that can articulate the passion and vision of the business. Then you have to have somebody who can figure out all the problems um, of building the product inside of that space. And I think that, you know, Dave McClure added the designer to it, which I think is fine. You kind of need somebody to make it look pretty. Right. Uh, and the UX to work properly in these days. And I think that's true. Um, but being a team of one means that you have to be both the hacker and the hustler, right. which means the bare minimum, I'm getting 50-50. That's what you're saying. Right? Unless you so, can prove that for however you are, you're like Lou Ferrigno and you give 110% and then you're 65-65. Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, but, or it means that, hey, my product actually doesn't need a ton of um, development work, so I don't really need the hacker side of it. So what I've done, is I've outsourced it, but here's how I'm managing the product so that I can be both the hacker and the hustler. Or, you know, actually here's what I've done is I've created a community-based product where the community is actually going to be my hustler, right? And here's how I'm seeding that, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing about having a pair 
you know, at a bare minimum is running companies sucks. Yeah. Like there's a lot of times where you just literally are sitting in the dark and crying. Yeah, like it's yeah. just tough. And not having a shoulder you can lean on, or having somebody else sit in that room that you can punch in the face or whatever, just makes it harder. Actually, I was just thinking, like, you were, like, someone's shoulder crying. I was like, I have my wife. And then you're like, or punch him in the face. And I was like, I have my wife. No, I'm not going to punch my wife in the face. <laughs> yeah, but no, it is. Like, running a company, I mean, yeah. Look. It sucks. It sucks. And I'll be the first to admit, like, yeah, I go out there and I'm happy and whatever it is. But, like, behind closed doors, most of the time, most entrepreneurs are, like, weeping because... Yeah something didn't go right or a client didn't sign a contract or or whatever it is um so it's all i mean i understand that i got a phone call yesterday from a friend of mine um who said who was telling me about this amazing thing that was happening in the company amazing thing and all the focus was was on this one tiny little mistake that's a founder right a founder can have fantastic things going on but it's the one stupid thing that we just did wrong that matters more than anything to us in our brains well that's like that isn't it it's like it takes 10 positive comments to undo like one negative one or something like there's some math yeah I, it, like I think it's 16 but yeah um <laughs> that's even but, worse yeah so it's just you know like you know it's like uh, like i so i'm stuck at home because i had i had spinal surgery and there isn't a whole lot I can do. So I've been baking because I don't know how to bake. And baking is very scientific. And so I figure it will force me to think through things and use my head properly. And I'll literally bake something and I'll chew on it. And I'll taste that like one piece of sugar that didn't properly like I don't know what it's called melt. And I'm like this whole thing's ruined. <laughs> like that's a founder. Yeah. Right. So having two just makes that a little easier. That's all. Um, the other thing that's interesting is there's an, a real, you talked about your wife, there's a really interesting debate around married founders. Yeah. And there's some VCs that are investors that, I mean, obviously they don't articulate this uh, uh, as loudly as you would imagine, but married founders are actually harder to invest in than non-married founders for some investors. Some investors like them. And here's the reason why. What happens when one of you sucks and they have to be fired? Right. What do you do? Well, that would be. I think. I think this is more if you're if you're married and the and the husband and wife are both founders. Correct. My wife's not part of my company. Correct. So, married founders meaning the the married couple I gotcha, I gotcha, are okay. the founders. Sorry. Right. Not not if you're married, you're not going to get the money. But no, no. If you're married, I mean, married, not married, doesn't matter. I mean, the other thing that's really interesting is the in the vent in tech venture. The reason why younger people tend to get investment. Here's the other piece on team that most people don't realize is VCs run a 10-year fund. The expectation is your business is going to last somewhere between three and five years, and there'll be some liquidity event in three to five years-ish, right? Uh, very rarely does, does a company run much longer than that without some significant liquidity event, at least for early investors. So one of the problems is that the reason why you're investing in a younger person is that you know that their first couple companies are probably going to suck. You may get lucky and get your money back, but probably you're not. By company three or four, they've got it figured out, and the likelihood of them having a positive liquidity event you know, goes up. I don't know what the numbers are. Say double. So really what I'm doing is I'm investing in the future of that founder 
much less than I'm investing in the business he's doing today. So what I'm looking for is how does that person solve the problem now and can this person be a serial entrepreneur right and be successful the reason why so many invest or so many uh, founders are successful in their 40s is because they've screwed up in their 20s and 30s so you're but saying that, I, you're saying that like a VC would would give one let's say they got approved or whatever and they gave money to this founder who's 25 years old yep based on the product they're showing at 25 but that product fails so that the founder pivots enough still retaining the money from the VC to like and keeps pivoting until they make the product work at which point now they're 40. No, what I'm saying is that the 25-year-old works on a product, perhaps it fails miserably. Let's say that company I lose all my money, right? And that that company has failed miserably. Okay. Um but the way the 25-year-old worked through the process, I'm like that dude has something. Oh, so right? you invest him in again. Then that's why so many failed founders get second investments. Got it. Because I'm investing in the serial entrepreneur potential much more so than the individual business that they're building. Right. Right. And if if I invest in you when you're 25, when your big idea comes out at 35, you're going to let me invest. Because I I was in early. Right. And and I would I, you'd be like a trusted advisor and yeah my no money guy, or what we like the my money guy or whatever it is. Yep. Exactly. So that's team, right? So team, I, I, we prefer, investors seem to prefer, uh, you know, multiple, like m not single founders. That's one of the reasons why single founders have a hard time getting into places like Techstars and YC. Um, you know, single founders are just tough. And, and I often will suggest to founders to find somebody, what I call a peer, right? Like it doesn't have to be a co-founder, but you need to have a peer that you can cry on their shoulder, punch them in the face, right? They understand what you've been through without you having to explain it. Right. You know, like for me, I'm not married, but like I, you know, this sort of came, my grandmother, when she was alive, I, when I sold my first company, we were talking on the phone and she's like, you know, Miha, I never knew what was going to happen to you. I figured you'd either be successful or be dead in the streets. I'm glad you're not dead in the street. And and that's how non entrepreneurs see entrepreneurs. That's so different than my grandmother, who my grandmother at ninety four, God bless her, she's just like, I want to be dead in the street. I'm like, Grandma, <laughs> that's horrible. Why would you say that? Yeah, that's you know that's funny. Um, so that's team. So market is market, right? Like right. you just need to know it better than anyone else. You need to see the opportunity inside of the market, and then the team has to be somebody that I really want to back because. They're people that over the long term, um, you know, I can continue to back over a period of time. The product, the product is actually the physical representation of the intelligence of the team. Right. That's it. Except for a lot of VCs, it's also ego. The ability to have an app on your phone that you can show your buddies and be like, yeah, I'm about to invest in these guys. They're going to be huge. <laughs> is actually a big deal. Right. Like the ability to have something where you can sort of tell people that you, you know, you found these people before anyone else is is a big deal. Um, and so and so really it's in that in that order. Market, team, product, um, product really is an indication of the team. Uh, I want intelligent teams that are operating inside of big markets. 
And then they need to also be able to articulate all of that into a slide deck. And the slide deck is really your calling card for when you're going out looking for investment. Right. And we can talk about an easy slide deck if you'd like. Actually, I had something else I wanted to I wanted to think. I was thinking about this. Because everyone can make a slide deck. That part's easy. But Sure. We talk a lot about we you read a lot about these investors and they're getting millions of dollars and millions of dollars and we've been talking about that also. What if the person or what if the entrepreneur needed I don't know, fifty thousand dollars or only a hundred thousand dollars? Is it the sure. same way? Should they be looking for something else? Should they just go get a loan from the bank? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question. So I think that um so I look at investors kind of uh, in different buckets. Um, you know, we talk broadly about the idea of there being angel investors and VCs, and we, we tend to talk about investment in terms of VCs. But there's really three different, maybe four different uh, buckets of investors. You have uh, friends and family, right? People you can just, you know, your mom. Uh, the hard part there is that you have this, you know, uh, difficult feeling of having to pay them back because they're your friends and family um, and at least get their cash back. So it's really important in that part of it if you're raising from friends and family that you literally sit them down and you go, I want you to understand this is neither a loan nor will I probably be able to give you your money back. Like you're, <laughs> If you lit this on fire, you would probably do better because you'd be warm than giving me the money. <laughs> Right? Like, let's just start there, and can if I, I give you money, we're good. Can I title this episode, Light, Light Your Money on Fire Now? Yeah, absolutely. So so friends and family is that. What A lot of investors or a lot of entrepreneurs don't look to banks, like small business loans, and there are venture banks and things like that. Um, I don't know why we don't look for alternative ways to raise, you know, raise money. Um, obviously, part of it is, is stage. But part of it is we just don't really like we don't have AR to take loans against, right? Um, so that's not so the bank is not a one of your four. No, no, uh, no. Um, the next two would be angels, and there's two types of angels. You have an emotional angel is usually just a rich person who likes you, so they're investing in you or likes the idea or likes the product, but it's purely emotional. There isn't a whole lot of education behind it. Um, those are great when uh, you're kind of in this weird state where you just need money um, because you haven't really got it started yet, but you don't have any friends and family to pull from anymore. And that's where you get your tens and twenty five and $50,000. I don't mean to sound callous about it, but, but emotional investors often are the worst investors over the long haul um, because they're emotional, right? So when things aren't going well, they're emotional. When things are going well, they're emotional. And um, and sometimes that just makes it really hard on the entrepreneur who's trying to build a business um, when they're getting, you know, calls from or emails from emotional investors. So, um, where's and, my money? Yeah, and just sort of like I don't understand why you did this, or I saw here's 17 articles that I've read. Why don't you have deals with all of them? You know, it's it's that kind of thing. And and I think one of the difficulties with the crowdfunding opportunities that are out there be it, you know, Angels List or Founders Club or uh, there's a whole bunch of them now, are the vast majority of those people that are participating are emotional investors. So they react somewhat emotionally, um, you know, which is which it's really the onus goes on the entrepreneur to do a good job of communication. But 
most entrepreneurs are really focused on building and so they don't communicate well and there's potential for problem there. So it's just something to, to be aware of. Um, then you have professional angels and these professional angels now are either sort of investing their own money, they may be investing a little bit of money from other people, they could be managing family offices, um, but they tend to look just like VCs, just the checks are much smaller and they don't continually invest over time. They just don't have it, right? So they'll give you 25, 100 grand, 200 grand, um, but in essence, that's it. Um, so the angel space is where you would go for sort of that $50,000 check. Right. Um, and then you have from there, you have your VCs. Right. And the VCs are, you know, seed or late stage. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different ones. Um, but that's really where you start to see those, you know, million dollar, five million, 10 million, or I think somebody just wrote, you know, a billion dollar check. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, like these numbers go get very, very big, very, very quick. But those are always in your VCs. And then you can sort of say the next stage after VCs are these growth folks. Um, so more of the private equity and that kind of thing. But but really at that point, your company is so large that you're taking on, you know, like I think Uber just took on another billion dollars of investment. Right. Like the numbers start to get very, very large. Um, in the VC space, the other thing that a lot of people don't realize that, that are actually great opportunities are um, corporations are now having venture arms. Um, and a lot of them will do, you know, smaller investments, uh, you know, from 200 grand to, you know, five or 10 million. Um, and also very often large customers can be really interesting investors. So, you know, you want to do a partnership with Samsung and Samsung's going to give you, you know, $5 million in investment plus whatever the deal is that you have with them. Right. Um, that happens more and more now as corporations are really trying to to look to technology startups as outsourced R&D. Huh. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. This is a lot of information. Huh. So, yeah. at, so at the end of this, I, I w it would only be fair for me to ask, you ready to give me $5 million? <laughs> <laughs> if I had it, sure. Yeah. <laughs> The, uh, you know, um, I'm working with a couple venture funds now that are, that, you know, are sort of seed stage venture funds. Um, and, uh, and it's fun. It, you know, it's nice to talk to founders kind of on that upswing. I, you know, once you get past kind of, I've got a business and now I'm just trying to grow it. Most of that venture money is all Excel financial things, right? Like there's no, uh, there's not a whole lot of, of thought process beyond, you know, does this work in a spreadsheet or not? Right. It's that seed stage, you know, or the A stage, which is really, really interesting. And and it's been fun watching a bunch of my friends sort of become VCs and, and do a really good job of kind of picking interesting companies and, and seeing them grow. Do you uh, and your friends as VCs, like, sit around in big red leather chairs drinking scotch <laughs> and smoking cigars, being like, did you see what that program did? And just... So, <laughs> yeah, so I'm not a VC. Like, I do want to be very clear about that. Right, right, like, no, I'm, I, know, I'm, I, know. I just, you know, help just a few. But there's a great documentary called uh, Something Ventured, uh, which talks about the early venture community in the Bay Area and sort of how these guys got started. And, um, and in it, they talk about how a bunch of them had made some money from, you know, uh, early, early, uh, you know, like 
chips like Lockheed or or Fairchild or these early companies here in the valley and um and they would meet at a coffee shop and uh entrepreneurs would come in and they would pitch them and they tell the entrepreneur to go outside they decide if they want to invest or not they bring the entrepreneur back in and then they would invest in them and uh or not invest in them and i always just thought that that's really how it should be right there should just be a bunch of dudes sitting at a coffee shop that you walk into and you're like hey <laughs> uh, i need a idea. Dollars. give me a couple and bucks, here's yeah. why yeah but uh um but there is you know there's certainly a lot of conversation among investors like investors are weird right in one way they want to be very supportive of one another but truthfully they want to get in on the deal so there isn't a lot of information sharing as one might imagine on hot deals right uh it's the less hot deals where you start to see a lot of information sharing well this is some great stuff i appreciate it miha where can people find you online uh, so probably the easiest way is to go to my about.me and it's just about.me slash uh, M-I-C-A-H-B uh, and that has all the ways that you can connect with me Great. put it in the show notes thanks dude I really appreciate it thank you very much that was fun my thanks to Miha for being on the episode and I, I hope you guys learned a lot from the lessons that he was talking about you know that First off, investors really only care about three things, understanding the market, knowing your team, and then the product, and the four groups of, of places to be to get investment. And unfortunately, even to today, we you know, Miha and I recorded that back in December. He still hasn't given me my $5 million, so I will hold him on that one um, for whenever he does get to it. But no, thank you so much for being on the show, Miha. I appreciate it. Uh, guys, thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate all of you listening and all the comments and the emails I get, please do leave a review in iTunes if you like the episode. Uh, send me an email, justin at justinescar.com. And uh, keep capitalizing, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye.